Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. So I'm carrying on in the series I began a few weeks ago called A Greater Perspective. And what we're trying to do is figure out the perspective of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount in particular and change our perspective so that we would begin to see things the way Jesus saw things. So week one, we talked about the Beatitudes, and I said the Beatitudes are really foundational to the Sermon on the Mount. And you kind of got to get them because it's the character of the Beatitudes that allows us to do the things of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So that was week one. Week two, inside out. And it was how everything in life really comes from the inside out. Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter. We live our lives from the inside out. What starts here eventually comes to the outside. Well, today my message is entitled, The Inverted Law. And the inverted law is very simply this. It's treating people exactly the opposite or the inverse of how they treated you when they treated you badly. And it's all about loving your enemy and doing all these kinds of things. We'll, we'll just jump, jump into it in a moment. But let me give you a little caveat right at the beginning. It is the easiest thing to understand. As I'm going through this today, you'll say, this is simple. I understand this. But it is the hardest thing you will ever do in your life. I guarantee it. It's just one of those things that sounds simple, but it's super difficult. It reminds me of the story of this man. He's beachcombing on the, the coast of B.C., kicks up the proverbial Aladdin's lamp. He rubs the lamp, out comes the genie. The genie says, you only get one wish, so make it a good one. He says, well, if I only have one wish, this is what I wish for. I wish, because I can't uh, stand to fly, I'm afraid to fly, and I've always wanted to go to Hawaii, I wish for a bridge from here to Hawaii so I could drive there in my car. The genie says, are you kidding? That's like really hard. Isn't there something else you'd rather wish for? He said, well, I always wished I could understand women. To which the genie says, would that be a two-lane or a four-lane bridge? (laughs) (laughs) Sounds easy, really hard. All right, so what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be looking at a verse that is so essential to the Sermon on the Mount. I would call it the quintessential instruction. If you can get this, this one verse and this one concept, which I call the inverted law, actually the whole of the uh, rest of the Sermon on the Mount makes sense. And so here it is. It's Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. And it says this. You've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. So there's a lot going on here, but let me begin where he begins. He says, you've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. The big question is, where did they hear that? Because yes, the Bible does say that you should love your enemy, but nowhere, and I repeat, nowhere does the Bible say that we are to hate our enemy. 
So when he says, you've heard this said, where were they hearing it? Well, from people. Because people say all kinds of things that they think scripture says that aren't necessarily true. I mean, how many of you ever heard this one? Well, it's like the Bible says, God helps those who help themselves. Is that in the Bible? It's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible, yet people quote it all the time. You know, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Pretty sure that one's not in the Bible either. People say stuff like this that think God said these things. But so we have this group of people. They think that the scriptures teaches that you are to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And Jesus comes along and says that is absolutely incorrect. You see, this is what we learn about Jesus and the inverted laws, I'm calling it, because he tells us to love our enemies. He was the only religious leader in all antiquity that ever told his followers that they were to love their enemy. You will not find that religious religious teachings anywhere else. But yet Jesus taught that. And as I said, the hardest thing you will ever do in your life. And, you know, when you look at it, you have to ask yourself this question. Why would he want us to do this? What would the reason be? And the reason isn't love your enemies because it'll drive them crazy. The reason you want to love your enemies is because God loves your enemies. Is that true? Is there anybody that God doesn't love? It said it right in the verse. It says he brings the the rain on the just and the unjust alike. It says he brings the sun on the evil and the good. And we know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so what we discover from scripture is that God always loves all people, even people that you don't think you could love. Enemies of the faith, enemies of good, enemies of God, enemies of you. God still loves them. And I, and I hate to break this news to you, but we, we are not where God is on this. There are people, I know people say, well, you know, Pastor Mark, I love everybody. I don't hate anybody. Really? Let's sort of press into that a bit and see how I can do on this one. Because I don't think we're being entirely honest with ourselves. I think there are people in this world that if we are really look deep down in our heart, we actually hate them. I'll give you one sort of easy example. How about Vladimir Putin? There's a lot of people and a lot of Christians that kind of hate him because of the things he's doing. But that list goes on and on. There are people that hate Donald Trump, people that hate Joe Biden, and there are people that hate Tucker Carlson, and there's people who hate Justin Trudeau, and people who hate Justin Bieber. I mean, who would hate Justin Bieber? He's got his own donuts. Tim Biebs, how good is that? I wish I got a donut named after me. No, well, not really. But, but here, here's the thing, is that we, we actually live in a culture of hate. And Jesus said in the last days, the love of many will grow cold and people will hate one another. And I think we're kind of living there now. So in the 1950s, there was a psychologist by the name of Gordon Allport, and he came up with what is called or known today as Allport's scale or Allport's prejudicial scale. I'm going to throw it to you. And it's, it's the level of hatred or prejudice that we have towards other people. And he scaled it out as a continuum from minimal to maximum. And so I'm going to start at the maximum there on the right side of the scale. And this is what he, what he called it. He called that area of hatred extermination where people hate other people so much that they're willing to kill them and execute them and exterminate them as an entire race like a genocide. And so we have examples of that in World War II with Nazi Germany and the Holocaust. We have examples from Cambodia in the 1970s with the Khmer Rouge, the 1990s, Rwanda, the Hutus and the Tutsis. I mean, this has existed for a long time. But none of you are anywhere near that, and so that's a good thing. But the next level here is attacks, and we've seen these on TV, and we see a lot of these in the news. 
where people have these senseless, murderous, violent attacks against other human beings. And we think, what is wrong with our world? What is wrong with these people? And again, I know none of you fall into that category because I haven't seen any white robes around here with KKK on them for a long time, so that's good. And then there's, in the middle ground there, there's this thing called discrimination. And I wonder if we're, again, looking into the deepest parts of our heart, if we haven't all been guilty of this at some point or another, where we have discriminated against a group or a people because of some human characteristic, and we somehow had, maybe even on some mild level, but we somehow discriminated. And then the next step down is the avoidance, and I know you've all done this. Avoidance is when, or you say, well, I don't hate people, I don't hate that group, or I don't hate that person, I just keep my distance. And, you know, you have to look and ask yourself this question, why? And I bet we've all done this where there's been someone on the street and we crossed over and went down on the other side. And we have avoided that human being. We don't think about that as being hate or prejudicial, but it is. So now I'm going to land on the very minimum one where I think we all live. And it's anti-locution. Locution. 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 One of those words. It's a fancy little word that means to speak ill of another person. And we've all done this. We all understand this, that we have times where we speak ill of other people. And here's how I know this, that you're all guilty of this, because you all drive a car. And if you drive a car, I'm pretty sure that you badmouth other people, other drivers. And I'm going to confess my sin to you. I'm the worst that there are in this. There's nobody worse than me. I honk at bad drivers. And I honk so much at bad drivers that I wore a horn out on my car. Kathy says, you know what, Mark? People don't wear their horns out. I say, yeah, you know, you got it. It's just, why are you always honking at people? You're always honking at people. I said, it's my responsibility to let them know they're a bad driver. That is my job. It's, my, it's, it's what I've been called to. She says, no, nobody wears their horn out. There's something wrong with you. I read this article. It says you should use your horn once or twice a year. I said, are you kidding? I can't get to work without using it once or twice. It's my responsibility. So anyway, Kathy told me I had to quit honking at everybody. And, you know, it was costing me money, wearing out horns and all that. And so I started doing something different. It was just as fun, really. And I would go and I'd smack my shift stick on it and I'd go... She said, what are you doing? I said, I'm shooting a missile at the car in front of me. And I'm blowing it up. She says, you know, that's just as annoying. You know that, don't you? I said, yeah, but at least I'm not bothering anybody else. You're bothering me. And then, of course, don't miss this, because when you're, when you're cursing, and I use the word cursing in the nicest sense, a bad driver, you call them names, don't you? I mean, you speak out, and sometimes, sometimes they're prejudicial, because you mention their gender, or they mention their race, or they mention their age, or usually all those three things together, right? <laughs> and so you know what I'm talking about. We are all guilty of this. But we look at our world today, and when it comes to our speech... And it comes to the things that are coming out of our mouth. We are living in a very vile age. And all we have to do is look at social media. And when you look at the things that people are saying on social media, and I'll tell you, they're a bunch of cowards. They hide behind the anonymity of a computer screen. They might even have a false name online. And they launch flaming missiles at other people. And they think they're so enlightened because they're calling out bad behavior in other people. And they don't recognize that they're guilty of the very thing that they're accusing other people to do. Because when you label people, and this is what they love to do, they love to label 
label people and call people out. When you label people, when you call them, let's say, a leftist or a, or a hard writer, or let's say you call them a, you know, a transphobe or a homophobe or a sexist or woke or uh, racist, when you call them these things, you're labeling them. And you think, if, if you think that you're somehow instructing them to do better, you are not. All you're doing is insulting them and demeaning them, and all you are doing is you are thinking that somehow you've got the moral high ground. You're the one insulting another person, and you are using the very lowest form of human discourse, which is ad hominem insults, when we just launch insults to people. And here's why I think it's so wrong. Jesus said we were to bless people who, what? Curse Curse us. Bless people who curse us. And if we get involved in that, we get, and see, I kind of feel like none of these words, see, let let me back up for a second. I think it's okay to discuss ideologies. I think we should discuss openly in our society socialism and capitalism and genderism and wokeism and racism. I think we should discuss all of these things as ideologies. What I don't think we should be doing is labeling people. Because what we are doing is imputing motive when we don't actually know anything about their heart now, do we? Now, we saw certain actions on the outside. What do we know what's really going on within their heart? And I think the word racist is the most overused word in the English language. And I can't believe it that we have people with the word reverend in their names, social activists, that use this word. How can we call people this when we don't actually know them? And Jane Fonda recently said that the climate change problem in the world was a result of racism. I'm thinking, how's the math work on that? I mean, the the, the biggest polluters in the world are actually China and India, and neither of them are a result of racism. It's all about uh, economic and political things, but we've decided we're going to blame everything on this or everything on that because it's so easy to just label somebody. When we look in Scripture... The scripture tells us that we are to actually use our mouth to bless those who curse us. That's a tough thing to do. And here at the end of the day, this is is the, the fact of the matter. The Sermon on the Mount is the antidote to the world's problems. What's wrong with the world? The Sermon on the Mount is the antidote. So the antidote is what? To love your enemies and to bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you and to pray for those who persecute you. And sometimes we just don't get it. There's a great story I love. It's about an Irish boxer, and he got converted to Christ, and he was pretty, you know, strident and excited about his new faith. And he went out in the street, and he was preaching. And a crowd of people gathered, and someone got offended, a belligerent drunk, walked right up to him and punched him right in the face, sucker punched him. So he was taken aback for a moment, and then he turned to this man, and he said, Jesus said that I should turn the other cheek. You have another shot. So the guy wound up and gave him another shot in the other cheek. And then the ex-boxer turned preacher proceeded to beat the living tar out of him. The crowd was aghast as they looked at this thing. And then he turned to the crowd and he said this, Jesus said to turn the other cheek. And then he gave no further instructions. (laughs) Absolutely not true. We have a lot of instructions here as to what we're supposed to do with this thing called the inverted law. So let's pick it up. I'm going to give you uh, four actual results of the inverted, or three rather, three results of the inverted law. Here they are on the screen. Number one, it has the power to end any conflict. Number two, it has the power to change us. And number three, it has the power to change others. 
So I want to talk to you about Peter for a moment. So Peter was there on the Sermon on the Mount. Remember that. He would have been there. He would have listened. We know he was there for a fact. Jesus was telling him about loving his enemies and doing all of this thing. And then for the next three years, what did Jesus do? He continued to teach that, the inverted law, and he continued to model it. Then, three years later, on the very last day of Jesus' ministry, the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, and Peter did what? He pulled out his sword and cut off the soldier's ear. Jesus was very impressed, correct? No, he was not impressed. He said, Peter, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. Don't you think he was just a wee bit exasperated? So three years, so you should pat yourself on the back on this. Three years, and Peter still didn't get it. So there's hope for us still, right? And so I look at this story and think, did he ever get it? And if you fast forward to his epistle, 1 Peter here it is, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, Do not repay evil for evil or insult for insult. On the contrary, repay, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. You know what Peter says later on in life? It took him a while, but he got there. He said, this is what we are called to. This is our job. Our job is not to return insult for insult, but to give blessing instead. That's how we are to live our life. And in the days of Jesus, the conflict in the Middle East was between the Jews and the Romans. If you fast forward to today, the conflict is between the Israelis and the Palestinians, right? And I want to tell you a little story about this. It's really fascinating. I think there's a big connection to the Sermon on the Mount. So there's this Arab man, by the Palestinian, by the name of Bassam Aramin. And Bassam lived, here's a picture of him some year, a few years ago, and uh, he grew up in the West Bank, uh, Palestinian-controlled West Bank, and he grew up there, and he grew up with an intense hatred towards the Jews. And he saw them as oppressive, and you know, you know all of that. And he was brought up as a, a young man to hate the Jews. And so what he and his friends would do is when the, the Israeli soldiers would come by, they would throw cans and bottles and rocks at the jeeps. And then what happened one day is they were exploring a cave and they found some old grenades, hand grenades. And the next time the jeeps came by, they threw the hand grenades at the jeeps. The two uh, of them exploded. Two of the, some of them were duds, but two of them actually exploded. Fortunately, nobody was killed, but these boys were captured, and Bassem was sentenced. He was 17 years old. He was sentenced to seven years in prison as a domestic terrorist. So he goes into prison, and his hatred for Jews is not lessening. It's just increasing day by day by day. And then they were uh, showing a film in the prison. Maybe some of you have heard of it. It was Steven Spielberg's Schindler's List about the Holocaust. And so the other prisoners said, oh yeah, you'll want to go see this, prison, this movie. It's a great movie uh, because in it they kill a bunch of Jews. And so he said, oh, any movie about killing Jews, I want to see it. So he goes to the movie and he's sitting in the movie. And many of you have seen it. It's a tremendous, tremendous historical piece. And uh, while he's watching the movie, and at the end of it, you have the scene where the Jews are being taken away to go to the gas chambers, and all of a sudden, something in his heart happened, and he felt empathy for the first time in his life for these poor Jewish people that were going to be executed, and he just began to weep, weeping uncontrollably, and what he wanted to do was he didn't want any of these other prisoners to see him, because something was happening on the inside of him that he actually cared, and he had empathy and compassion for these people that were about to be executed, people that he hated. So he didn't entirely know what was going on, but it began to change him from the inside out. 
And then he was having a discussion one day with one of his Jewish guards, and the, and, the, and the guard asked him this question and said, you know, you seem like a decent fellow. How come a guy like you ended up a terrorist? He said, terrorist? He said, you're the terrorist. I'm the freedom fighter. And they began this dialogue about who was the terrorist and who wasn't. And what ended up happening was an unlikely friendship between prisoner and guard. And they actually began to care for one another and be concerned for the other person's cause and plight. And the most important thing was they began to get understanding and empathy for the other person. So Bassam went on and he studied and he earned a master's degree, are you ready for this, in Holocaust studies. He wanted to understand his enemy. Then he went and learned the Hebrew language so he could communicate to them. And then he came out and he started meeting with a group of former Israeli soldiers that were called the combatants for peace that no longer wanted to fight against the Palestinians and they thought there was a better way to resolve this conflict. So he began to embrace this concept of nonviolent you know, resistance and those sort of things. And then a real tragedy happened, a bigger tragedy. His 10-year-old daughter was killed by a stray bullet from an Israeli soldier. But rubber bullet, but it killed her, hit her in the back of the head, killed her. She was standing outside her school the assailant never, never got, uh, went to justice, never came to justice. And Bassam had to decide, how am I going to do with, deal with this? I've lost my daughter. I've had this Israeli killed her. He never faced justice. And he decided the only thing he could really do was to forgive this man. And he decided that both his daughter and the soldier were actually victims of the conflict. That's how he reconciled it in, a, in his mind. And so then he met another man who was actually an Israeli, and his name was Rami. And here's Rami, and I'll tell you a little bit about Rami for a minute. So that's Bassam on the left, and that's Rami on the right. And let me ask you a question. Do these two look like they like each other? I mean, look at them. He's ha- they're hanging off each other. They're, ho- they're clasping hands. These two men love each other. And one is an Israeli, and one of them is a, a Palestinian. And the reason they have this affinity together is that Rami lost his daughter to a suicide bomber. And they both were sharing this grief and they knew that the conflict was not ending anything. And this eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, this he who lives by the sword, dies by the sword, wasn't working. And they recognized the truth of, neither of them are Christians, but they recognized the truth of the Sermon on the Mount and that there was a much higher way to live their life. And these two men are kind of household names in Israel today. They go around giving speeches and talking to young people and promoting uh, peace and understanding and trying to get people to love one another. Because if you learn to love one another like these two men do, and a lot of times all you have to do is get to know somebody and you can learn to love them. Now, I know for most of us, I think that's a cool story, but I think for most of us, we're not in a military conflict. We live in North America. But we have conflicts just the same, and you have enemies just the same. And these people that you have conflicts with are people you work with, or people you go to school with, or they're people, are you ready for this? That you live with. And these, it's true, sometimes the people that we are the nearest to are the people that end up becoming our enemies. And there's people in this room that know exactly what I'm talking about. You have unresolved conflicts, and I'm telling you, the inverted law can resolve those conflicts. So I've told you many times about this man by the name of Smith Wigglesworth. He was a preacher about 100 years ago, and his, his stuff is legendary. I mean, he not only was an amazing preacher, but God had blessed him with gifts of healings and miracles. So there's stories of him raising the dead, and I've shared some of those stories. But one of the stories I have not shared is the fact of how he came to Christ. 
And in fact, before he was a preacher, he was a 50-year-old plumber who was a non-Christian. And not only that, he was sort of a terrible husband and a bit of a despicable human being. And his wife was the Christian, and she was the one praying for him. He didn't get converted until he was 50 years old. And there's all kinds of stories about how reprehensible his behavior was when he was, you know, before he came to Christ. And here's this one story. So one night his wife says to him, Smith, I'm going to church tonight. It's a Sunday night. And he says, I don't want you to go. She says, Smith, I love you, but I love Jesus, and I'm going to church tonight. It's what I do. He said, if you go to church, I tell you, and I promise you, that this front door will be locked, and you will spend the night outside if you go to church. She said, well, you do what you have to do. And so off she went to church, and when she came back, sure enough, the door was locked, and Smith had gone to bed. She banged on the door. He did not answer the door, so this is what she did. She curled up in a ball on the front step and spent the night there. In the morning, Smith opened the door. She stood up, brushed herself off, and said, Good morning, Smith. What can I make you for breakfast? (laughs) Every woman in the room is gasping at this moment. They thought this story was going to go, and she pulled out her AR-15 and blew him away. (laughs) Pleaded self-defense, and she got off. (laughs) No, that's what they do in America. In in London, in these days, they did things different. Now, I'm not recommending the behavior of either of these people, except that she understood something about the power of the inverted law, and what ended up happening is her behavior towards her husband turned his heart, and eventually he came to Christ and went on to change the world. See, that's the power of the inverted law, it has the power to resolve every conflict. Number two, it has the power to change us. I wonder if you noticed in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus was talking about loving your enemy, etc., etc., he says that you will be the sons of the Most High. You see, that's who we're supposed to be. When we live and act like this, We are called the sons of God. We are known as the sons of God because we act like the sons of God. And so his desire is to actually to change and transform us from the inside out, which is sometimes a very difficult concept, right? But we, when we engage with Christ and the inverted law, it actually has the power to change us. So I have this little story I want to tell you. Everyone in the room is probably familiar with Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. It's a beautiful fresco. It's on a wall. Uh, it's, it's hundreds and hundreds of years old. And uh, it depicts the Last Supper with Jesus and his disciples and the cup. And, uh, and Judas, of course, is in this mix and all this. So here's what you probably don't know. When he was painting it or pr- producing this fresco, he was having a serious dispute with one of his friends. So much so that he had become bitter towards his friend. And when he was painting the picture of Judas, he decided to paint Judas as his friend. And so Judas was depicted as his friend, the one he was having this conflict with. And I can imagine, I'm speculating, but I can imagine him standing back, all self-satisfied, looking at that going, oh yeah, that's Judas, for sure. So the next day he came back to continue on, and at this point he was going to paint the face of Christ. He had, had painted the disciples first. And he, for the life of him, could not picture the face of Christ. It wasn't coming to him, and he had painter's block, and he couldn't figure it out. And day after day went back, and he thought, why can't I see the face of Christ? And all of a sudden, it was revealed to him, probably by the Holy Spirit, that the reason he couldn't see the face of Christ was because of his offense towards his friend. 
And he went over and he whitewashed over the face of Judas. He painted him as someone else. Here's the picture, by the way. There, this is like spot Judas picture. I don't know if you can spot him or not. And, uh, and then he's painted Judas as the one we've seen in that picture many, many times. And all of a sudden, the face of Christ appeared to him. And he was able to paint that memorable, iconic picture of Jesus. And see, this is what happens. See, the Sermon on the Mount has the power to change us. And if, we, if it doesn't, we have trouble seeing the face of Christ. I'm wondering if you can think about that just for a moment. And even as Christians, of all people, we need to be changed from the inside out more than anybody else. So I want to tell you a story about this, about two preachers that lived uh, 150 years ago, famous preachers in the city of London. And the one man's name was Joseph Parker. Here's a picture of him. Joseph Parker on the left, and you'll probably recognize the man on the right. That's Charles Spurgeon, the famous uh, English preacher. And a lot of people aren't, don't know this, but these men had mega churches in the middle of the 1800s. Mega churches in downtown London. And uh, I'll show you, Joseph Parker's church was this one. It's actually almost 400 years old. It's still there today. Uh, it's called uh, City Temple. This church here is Metropolitan Tabernacle. That's where Charles Spurgeon preached for some 40-some years. And uh, it was another mega church. This was a picture, a drawn picture from 1864. And uh, there, if you look right in the middle of the picture, you can see him way, way at the top in the middle there and thousands of people. He preached to 5,000 people every Sunday morning without a microphone. And uh, so here's what happened, which is sort of a fascinating story, was that they didn't, have, they didn't have microphones, they didn't have tape recorders, they didn't have television cameras, and yet they built these mega churches in downtown London. And so what happens was the newspaper reporters came and sat in on the sermons and they transcribed the sermons and they published them in the paper on Monday morning. And so what had happened was Joseph Parker had made a, just said something. It was maybe more innocent than it sounds, but we have Charles Spurgeon, he had started an orphanage for boys. And the orphanage was struggling for money, and the, well, there were sort of bad conditions, and there wasn't enough money to feed the, the boys, etc. And Joseph Parker made this comment that there was deplorable conditions, and the boys weren't being fed properly. It got back to Charles Spurgeon, and he went ballistic, and he stood up the next Sunday, and he absolutely flamed Joseph Parker. He just ripped into him for the entire sermon. Uh, very not, not very Christ-like. And then what happens is the next day it's published in the newspaper. And so Joseph Parker's reading Spurgeon's sermon where he attacked him. And then the next Sunday, what had happened, and cities are like this. We're so weird. Everybody flocks to Joseph Parker's church because they want to hear the rebuttal. Right? People haven't changed much, have they? Right? Even the Christian people. And there was literally hundreds of people in line to get in the church before the doors even opened. And they all rushed in and they all got a full of glee like, can't hear to wait to hear what he says. Anyway, he stood up and he said this. He said, I understand that Reverend Spurgeon is ill today and will not be in his pulpit. And this is the Sunday that he normally takes an offering for his orphanage. So I thought the right thing for us would be to take up an offering for Reverend Spurgeon's orphanage. So that's what we're going to do today. And they took up this offering, raised a, a considerable amount of money, and the next day, Spurgeon reads about it in the newspaper. 
Tuesday morning, Spurgeon arrives at Joseph Parker's house. He walks in the door and he hugs this man and he said, I have never seen the spirit of Christ stronger in another human being than you. You are truly a man of grace and gave me what I did not deserve. And the two became best friends for the rest of their life. You see, that's the power of the inverted law. You can cheer. Some of you want to cheer. You go ahead and cheer. You were going to give a golf clap for that. That that deserves more than a golf clap. So the first thing is this, that the the inverted law has the power to resolve every conflict. The the inverted law has the power to change you. And the last and the final thing is the inverted law has the power to change others. And that's that's the big point of it, is so that we can be this example to the world and see their hearts change because of our great example, right? I don't want to say great, but it's it's sort of true. How many are familiar with the show or the movie or the musical Les Miserables? How many of you know Les Miserables? You, you all know Miser- Les Miserables, right? Master of the house, doling out the charm, ready with a handshake and an open palm, tells a saucy tale, makes a little stir, everybody appreciates a little bon vivre. Right? <laughs> <That's> the... <laughs> you know they won't let me sing in the worship team, so I just do it in my sermons. <laughs> There's a good reason why they won't let me. But that's the musical. But the novel was written, of course, by Victor Hugo. And it's the story of Jean Valjean. And Jean Valjean steals a loaf of bread to feed his family and ends up going to prison. When he gets out of prison, he has nowhere to go, nowhere to live, no way to eat. And a a kindly bishop, Muriel, takes him into his home. And he gives him food to eat and he gives him a bed for the night. But in the early morning, in the darkness, Jean Valjean wakes up and steals the man's silverware and takes off down the street. He gets arrested by the soldiers who know who the silverware belongs to, so they bring it back to his door with this arrested man, Jean Valjean. And the bishop comes to the door, it's still dark out, wearing his nightclothes. And they said, we've we've got this man and we think he's stolen your silverware. To which the bishop says, he did not steal it, I gave it to him, and he left in such a rush this morning that he forgot to take the silver candlesticks as well. And he grabbed the silver candlesticks, and he gave them to Jean Valjean, and this act of extraordinary, uncommon kindness changed this man's life forever. And he became a better person because of the inverted law. I love this story of Les Miserables. There's lots of tragedy and hardship in it, but the core message of the inverted law is so powerful. And I'm going to close today with one story. I know some of you heard it before. You're going to have to forgive me. I know it's in my book. You're going to have to forgive me. But it has to go in this sermon, so you're going to hear it again, because there's other people who have never heard it. And it's the best story I've got on anything. So here's the story. When our kids were growing up, uh, we had two Jasons in the neighborhood, Jason and the other Jason that my kids called the bad Jason. You know why they called him the bad Jason? Because he was bad. He was a real stinker. And if, you know, if there was a bike stolen, it was a bad Jason. If there was a house egged, it was a bad Jason. You know, in our neighborhood with bad Jason around, every day was Friday the 13th, right? Some of you will get that reference. And, and, and he, was just a, he was just a bit of a stinker. And, you know, he had some reasons. I mean, he had no father. There was no father around. His mother worked. He re- kind of roamed the streets like a stray dog. And so one day I went out and I bought my kids a brand new basketball. I was pretty excited about the new ball. And they liked it and whatever. And I put it in the garage. And then the next day... 
I'm standing and I'm looking out my, our back window and our back window f- faces the schoolyard and there's a basketball court there and I see the, the bad Jason out there and I'm pretty sure that that's my basketball because I recognize the color of it and I'm looking and I think, that kid has stolen my basketball and went to the garage and sure enough it was missing. So then I walk across the schoolyard to where the bad Jason is and I said, Jason, is that my basketball? He said, yeah. I said, why'd you steal my basketball? He said, what am I supposed to do? I don't have one of my own. That's not a bad point, but, uh, you know, still doesn't justify what he did. I said, I don't want you stealing my basketball. You can't just go into my garage and steal my basketball. I'll tell you what I'll do. You can use my basketball anytime you want, but all I want you to do is I want you to knock on the door and ask me to use it, and I'll let you use it. And I said, so you can keep playing, but now that's the rule. So I walked away, and I think, (laughs) I am really something. I am really something. I really know how to live out this inverted law. I really know how to do good to those who hate me. I'm I'm just really proud of myself. So the next day, I look out the same window. Who do I see? Jason, the bad Jason. And he's got my basketball. And he never knocked on my door. And I think, what's this kid doing? I told him he could have it. I mean, what's he doing? So, so, So I got up and I went outside and I said, Jason, what are you doing? He said, I needed the basketball. I said, I told you to knock on the door. He said, I didn't have time to knock on the door. I need the basketball right now. What was I supposed to do? I said, Jason, I made a deal with you. I said, you could use it anytime you want it, as long as you asked. You didn't ask, so I'm taking it away from you. And you can use it, but you got to ask. And I'm walking away, feeling all self-assured and thinking this. You know, here's what I'm thinking. That I love the guy, but I'm giving him some Tough love now. That's what I'm doing. So, so I walk home with the basketball thinking, yeah, all right, I taught him. So, so anyway, I put it in the garage one more time. I'm not very smart. I should have really locked that garage. But anyway, I, I, I was thinking the best of him. So, so anyway, true story. Next day, I look out the front window, and there's Jason, the bad Jason, going down the street, bouncing my basketball. He's bouncing my basketball down the street. I can't believe it. And so I poked my head out the door. I walked out there. I said, Jason, guess what he does this time? He runs. He takes off. And he's running down the street. And I think, I'm not going to catch this kid. He's 13 years old. I, I need to get a bike. So I ran to the garage. And I ran to the garage, grabbed the first bike that was there. And it was this little pink Barbie bike of my daughter's. And so I started riding down the street yelling, Jason, Jason, you come back here. Jason. And so I'm tearing down the street, yelling my head off. There's a big vein popping out of my forehead like this. And I'm screaming like a crazy banshee man on a little pink girl's Barbie bike, chasing after this poor kid. And by this time, it's Saturday afternoon. So all of the neighbors decide to come out and see what's going on. And they see the preacher from Church of the Rock a few blocks away, chasing some kid down the street, yelling at him, Jason! 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 So I kept on chasing him. I kept on chasing him. And I, and I actually caught up to him. This is a pretty fast bike. It doesn't look like much, but it really goes when you push on it. So I get the ball back from him, and I'm riding home like this, with the ball under my hand like this, and every single person in the neighborhood is looking at me, and they're staring at me. And I'm thinking, what did I just do? And I took the basketball and I put it in the basement where Jason couldn't get in. But then all of a sudden, all day long, I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking, I'm the worst Christian ever. 
here I am, the pastor, chasing some kid down the street to get my basketball back and yelling like a banshee, and every single person on the street saw me do it. They're probably all talking about what a moron I am and how I don't understand anything. And, and then I thought, I know what I got to do. I know what I got to do. Next day, I see Jason, the bad Jason, walking down the street. He doesn't have my basketball because it's locked in the basement. He doesn't know how to get in my basement. So I went downstairs and I got the ball. I walked out the door. I said, hey, Jason, guess what he did? He started running. Why wouldn't he? I just chased him down on a pink bike yesterday. And I said, Jason. I said, no, no, wait. It's fine. It's good. It's good. And I walked over to him and I said, Jason, I want you to have this basketball. I know you don't have a dad in your life to buy you a ball. And I want to buy you this ball. I can buy my kids another ball. You can have the ball. And I gave him the ball. (laughs) He took the ball, turned around, never even said thank you, and just walked away. (laughs) And then, of course, you're already second guessing. And I think, did I do the right thing? I'll tell you, I did the right thing. Because I never had another moment's grief from the bad Jason. And he was no longer the bad Jason. I don't know if he was with other people, but it certainly changed his heart. And he never bothered me, harassed me, never broke into my, my garage. And he would go by and I'd say, hey, Jason. He would say, and he, he would grunt at me. It's the best I could get out of this poor kid. But the point is this, that the inverted law has the power not only to resolve every conflict, not only to change us, but to change others around. That's why it's called the inverted law to transform and change lives. And it's a simple matter of learning how to love our enemies. Let's stand together. So I want to take a moment here with every head bowed and every eye closed if we could because I know there's people in this room that have never invited Christ into your life to be your Lord and Savior. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. And I want you to remember this, that maybe you haven't considered yourself an enemy of God, but we all were. Before we came to Christ, we were all on the wrong side. And yet he loved us so much that he died on the cross for our sin. And that... It's how Jesus lived, and it's how he wants us to live. And so if you're in the room today and you've never made that decision to be a follower of Christ, you've never invited him into your heart to be your Lord and Savior, I want to give you an opportunity today to do that. And I won't call you forward, single you out. I'm not going to ask you to say anything publicly. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. But if that's you today and you'd like to make that decision, or maybe you've made it in the past and you've slipped away, I want you to just slip your hand up right now. Nobody's looking around. Just take a moment, raise your hand. Let me know that's what you want to do. Let me know that you want to make that decision. Okay, anybody else want to join these folks? All right, okay, you can all put your hands down. We're all going to pray together. Can we do that? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the work of the cross. Though I was far from God, you loved me enough that you died on the cross for my sin. And you rose from the dead on the third day. And you forever live to be my Lord. And I'm a new creation in Christ. And I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit and help me to live the inverted law and to see the lives of others and my own life changed and transformed by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give the Lord a shout, shall we? Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. 
To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app. 